Hello, friends. Welcome to the first episode of the Black Moon Podcast. I'm your host, Olka Balde, and I'm so honored that you're joining me today. The material covered in this podcast does speak on death and dying, specifically as it relates to Black people, trauma, and other subjects that may be hard to hear. This podcast is aimed towards collective healing, so I won't say that it's not suitable for everyone. I believe we all deserve to be free and well. But I will ask that you exercise discretion, particularly for anyone who may not consent to hearing these materials, children included. Before we get into the focus of this episode, I'd really like to tell you what this podcast is about. For many of us who've spent our lives in this country and who've been socialized through this media, we see the disparity in focus, disparity in surveillance, disparity in distortion, and disparity in justification when it comes to being Black. I have to ask what all this media is doing to our psyche. At some point in the last two decades, we began to experience Black people dying online. That's a really short amount of time, the internet part, not the experiencing Black people dying part. A lot of us saw Philando Castile shot in his car. Many of us watched as Mike Brown's body lay in the street hour after hour after hour. And some of us were even there when Corinne Gaines live streamed the police perpetrating her murder. Most recently, I think I did watch Nipsey Hussle in the last moments of his life. On this episode of the Black Moon Podcast, I'm going to talk to you about what it means to be an activist to advocate for Black life, including your own. On this episode of the Black Moon Podcast, I'm going to tell you the story of Marshawn McCarroll, at least a small part of it anyways. I didn't know Marshawn personally, so this episode is just my small contribution to continuing his story and remembering his legacy. In researching more about Marshawn's story, I did get the honor of speaking to one of his close friends. Born November 23, 1992, in Columbus, Ohio, Marshawn McCarroll was a graduate of Franklin Heights High School, class of 2011. Marshawn was a member of the Committed to the Word Church. He helped build the Ohio Student Association, a group that supports youth leaders advocating for racial, social, and economic justice in Ohio. And in 2013, he founded Pursuing Our Dreams, a mentorship program and a self-described tribe that operates under the belief that we have to build community to move community. Every month to this day, Pursuing Our Dreams holds an event called Feed the Street, where members give out homemade lunches to houseless people and distribute winter clothing when it's cold. Marshawn was particularly sensitive to the hardships of living on the streets, having been homeless himself for three months just after graduating high school. He would encourage members to have conversations with the people they were feeding. Marshawn would remind folks that a person might get hungry again in two hours, but a good conversation could carry them over for a lifetime. I think it's wise and far-reaching sentiments like that one that first made me feel like Marshawn was kin. One of the first images circulated after his death was a photo of him with a quote of his superimposed, I need a pistol that shoots hope. I would light the hood up. Those words have stayed with me for six years, and I suspect they'll continue to stay for a lot longer. Marshawn was more than a community organizer. 
more than a poet even. And from this poet, that's saying a lot. He inspired people to help others. His tribe described him as living the commitments that many of us talk about every day. They say, Marshawn was a soldier for liberation for all people. His spirit was effervescent with visionary beauty, creativity, and love. On Monday, February 8th, 2016, around 6 p.m., at the tender age of 23, it is said that Marshawn McCarroll committed suicide in front of Ohio's State House. The 23-year-old was pronounced dead at the scene from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. There were no witnesses to the shooting. For months, weeks, days before his death, Marshawn had been posting tweets that, after the fact, do read like a suicide note, or at least red flags for what was about to happen. But hindsight is 2020. Now we can look at what Marshawn said before he left and hope we recognize the veiled ask for help if and when we do see them again. On January 27th, he tweeted, I'm exhausted spiritually. A few days before that, he tweeted, I'm convinced I don't belong here. The day before that, he said, I promise when I get back home, I'm going to look into natural remedies to help my sleeping. This is ridiculous. Two nights before that, he said, It's crazy how much of a prison poverty is. Me traveling to Cleveland from Columbus is a big deal for people. Like I made it or something. We work hard to escape poverty, but have to keep working or we'll go back. Have to save till we old enough to retire. Then living happens. That's the weakest shit in the world to me. But I bet I punch in tomorrow because that's all I can do. Marshawn's last tweets before his death read, let the record show that I pissed on the state house before I left. If we don't have to live through hell just to get to heaven, I'm going to stay right here with you. I hope none of what I'm sharing insinuates that anyone could have known that these tweets were possibly foreshadowing his death. I only read them to point out some warning signs that you should be aware of. Marshawn was having trouble sleeping. He was expressing a deep dissatisfaction with the status quo of living in poverty. He was clearly sensitive and he was often expressing mental turmoil. All this despite having just announced that he'd be moving to D.C. And a week before his death, he traveled to California to attend the NAACP Image Awards, where he was recognized as a hometown champion for his great work and activism in the community. In one of his last photos, posted three days before his death, Marshawn can be seen posing on the red carpet at the NAACP Awards with his clearly very proud mother. He was receiving an award for his work. He was about to make a huge change in his life. And as far as I can see online, his community was showing out to congratulate his work and letting him know that he was a leader and inspiration to everyone. Even if his expression of being dissatisfied with life, despite all of these seemingly great things, wasn't a sign of a suicidal person, 
I think they were at least enough for someone to notice and seriously reach out to him. But I get the sense that many did pay attention and show up when it came to Marshawn. He was a builder of community after all. But I wonder how many of those folks were held and cared for themselves. How many of Marshawn's people and people in our own communities are trying to care for others whilst themselves are losing sleep, losing years of life from dealing with poverty every day, and are trying to heal from old and new traumas. Holding and caring for one another isn't as simple as sending a message on social media. We have to care for ourselves, and like Marshawn knew, we have to share space and conversation with people, in person, one-on-one, in community. Before I continue, I do want to stop and talk to you about the possible warning signs for someone who is suicidal, and a few tips for what to do if you suspect or discover that someone you love is contemplating suicide. Symptoms might look like excessive sadness or moodiness, sadness that lasts a really long time, maybe unexpected expressions of rage, feeling and maybe expressing a deep sense of hopelessness about the future and having little to no expectation that things will improve. Sleep problems. Sudden calmness, where the person is jarringly calm after a period of depression. Sudden calmness can be a sign that someone's made the decision to end their life. Withdrawal, uh, choosing to be alone, and avoiding friends or social activities not expressing pleasure in activities that someone might have enjoyed once, changes in personality or appearance like speaking or moving unusually slow or suddenly becoming less concerned about their appearance, and dangerous or self-harmful behavior like driving recklessly, using sex in unsafe ways, and drinking or doing more drugs. To reiterate, I do not know how many, if any, of these Marshawn may have experienced or expressed before his death. I just want as many people to have this information as possible so that if you do see it, you have the opportunity to intervene and save someone's valuable and probably beautiful life. There's no single cause for suicide, but we know that some folks are more at risk than others. Native and indigenous people, trans and queer teens, veterans, young Black kids, and folks with chronic and clinical depression. Suicide most often happens when stress, hopelessness, and health issues converge to create an experience of despair, or when a person's everyday life simply becomes unbearable. If you're listening to this, and you're in this headspace right now, you're considering ending your life. Please tell someone. Find the most trustworthy person you can and just let them know. It's already the worst that it could be. And if you're hearing this right now, I hope you know that it can get so, so, so much better. Suicidal thoughts thrive in isolation and in darkness. You are not alone. Please reach out. If you're listening to this and you suspect someone you know may be having suicidal thoughts, just ask them outright. Give them a call, go to them, 
check on them often, and figure out how you can help them build community. Suicide isn't always preventable, but timely interventions can make a huge difference if you know the risk factors, recognize the warning signs, and intervene before the person can complete the process of self-destruction. People who receive support from friends, family, and community, and who have access to mental health services are less likely to act on suicidal impulses than those who are isolated. If you think someone is in immediate danger of suicide, don't leave them alone, and if possible, ask for help from friends or other family members. Keep calm yourself in order to keep them calm and remove triggering stressors such as very bright lights and loud sounds. Remove all weapons, sharps, and other objects that could be used for self-harm. And if absolutely necessary, try to take them yourself to a psychiatric facility. Now I will give a huge caveat. I caution folks when calling 911 in mental health emergencies that involve Black people. We have seen time and time again Black people calling 911 for help, especially when there's a mental health emergency, and police show up to cuff or kill loved ones. I encourage everyone listening to this to make an emergency plan if you or a loved one has a mental health emergency that avoids police involvement as much as humanly possible. I encourage everyone to learn ways to de-escalate and maybe even disarm if someone has a weapon that isn't a gun. Do not put yourself at unnecessary risk, but remember that for many Black people experiencing mental health emergencies, police involvement may mean death. Now I want to talk about what killed Marshawn. Rather, why Marshawn died. I can't know for sure what he was thinking on that day or the days leading up to his death, but there's a lot here for us to talk about. I think Marshawn would want his death to honor the way he lived his life as an instrument for pushing Black liberation, as a point of education for how we can all get free. After his death, the Ohio Student Association released a statement honoring Marshawn. It read, The symbolism of his choice to take his life at the front door of the Ohio State House is not lost on us. He knew what was killing him and us, and he would leave no mysteries. We fought alongside Marshawn to end state-sanctioned violence against Black people. Time and time again, as police gunned down more people in Ohio and across the nation, we demanded change. We shut down malls, police stations, courthouses, and that very same state house. We didn't get justice or accountability from our elected officials when John Crawford, Tanisha Anderson, or Tamir Rice were killed. We were told to wait, or that we didn't have the facts, or that we were knocking on the wrong person's door. Our elected officials repeatedly told us that they would stand by the system in place over our people. Like many before him, Marshawn gave his life to the Black freedom struggle, and we will continue to fight in his name. I didn't know Marshawn. 
I found out about his death from the same place that many of us find out when black people die. Social media. I was thrown back to myself. 20-something, marching the streets of Baltimore, protesting police brutality, interrupting city hall meetings, and arriving with my fellow comrades at police-involved crime scenes to act as watchers. I remember hearing about Marshawn's death and feeling like my life, if we'd been in the same place, would have intersected me with him. I felt like I probably would have had a crush on him. Same age, passionate, black, poet, disruptor, intervener, builder, teacher. Man, losing Marshawn felt like a loss to the culture, to the movement. I didn't know him and still it was palpable. For me, Marshawn's death brought in the stark reality of textbook knowledge versus experiential knowledge, aka knowing something and really knowing something. Even in the face of our most corrupted public school systems, I think most of us know that many slaves died in the pursuit of justice. We know the names and the deaths of men like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. But until that moment, I didn't deep in my heart know that millions of Black organizers have paid their lives for our freedom. Marshawn knew, though. He organized and led protests to recognize violence against trans people. His tribe said he drew inspiration from the traditions of the Black Panthers and Young Lords, Black and Chicano freedom organizations, and he always reminded of the importance of loving each other to our liberation. In the summer of 2013, Alicia Garza, Patrice Coolers, and Opal Tometi began an international cry for justice and liberation from the systemic violence perpetrated against Black people. Black Lives Matter, a hashtag, a chant, a flashpoint, a continuation in the lineage of the movement for civil rights and Black liberation. Or as Alicia Garza put it so well, a love note to Black people. For many of us, young and budding, Black Lives Matter became the space for a language we hadn't heard before but recognized deep in our guts. It became the space to acknowledge just by the mere fact of our lives, just by being alive, that Black life is sacred, threatening, and ultimately political. Since the inception of Black Lives Matter, internet videos, kinfolk becoming Twitter hashtags, and purveyors of viral trauma have reminded us day after day that Black people cannot be children, cannot barbecue, cannot change lanes, cannot save lives, and cannot exist without being the target of systemic violence, caging, and death. But outside of the struggle to stop the state from taking our lives, many of us are also battling internal demons. I know at the height of me hitting the streets, so to speak, 
I was deeply depressed because I was constantly in close proximity to the results of an uncaring and unapologetically violent system. Three years before Marshawn's death, in the winter of 2013, I joined the Baltimore Block, a collective running a free school out of the Red Emma's Radical Bookstore. Mostly, we talked about issues and how to organize around them. Homelessness, erasure, police and city impunity. Through the block, I began lending my voice to the story of Tyrone West, protesting and staging tactics at city council at the lying ass medical examiner's office, at the state's attorney's office, and at the police headquarters. His sister, Tawanda, to this day, fights for justice for Tyrone. On July 18th, 2013, Tyrone West, a 44-year-old African-American male, was stopped by two police officers of the Baltimore City Police Department. Those officers called for backup, and for no proven reason to this day, eight to 12 officers beat Tyrone West to death. I saw his cousin talk about the autopsy, the second autopsy they had to do on his body. He remarked that the officers had not just beat Tyrone to death, they beat him after death, post-mortem, like a mob out of control. I made an okay documentary about it. I'll link that in the show notes. If you'd just like to Google it, it's called A Year in the Death of Tyrone West. I can't speak on every place, but my time organizing around the police brutality that was apparent in Tyrone West's case taught me one thing. The police system in the city of Baltimore can only be fixed by a complete and thorough demilitarization and dismantling of the department. You can only step to me with a challenge to that sentiment if you've physically been in the room with officers and leaders of the Baltimore Police Force. If you have, and you've seen nothing wrong, I'd further add that there's probably something deeply wrong with you. In the beginning of my time in Baltimore, I truly believed that if we were loud enough, if I was smart enough, we could change something. But the truth set in hard. The fight here was going to be long. And even if I had enough hope in the city's liberation, I didn't have the time. I wanted to get out of Maryland so bad for so long. Well, that's half of the truth. I didn't have the mental strength. I couldn't cut it. Because she was speaking out, Tyrone's sister, Tawanda, began to see her tires slashed regularly. Undercover cops began to show up to our free school and try to do weird things like propose we plan violence against the police. And when it wasn't stupid city councilors saying stupid things to me like, don't you think it's the obligation of the community to teach their children to trust the police? It was petty drama and infighting because trauma and stress and 
No one teaching you how to communicate well is real, and it has an effect. Since that time, Baltimore police have continued to devolve. One officer, Joe Crystal, reported the illegal assault of a citizen at the hands of two of his fellow police officers, and the department responded with threats and putting dead rats on his car. Joe Crystal literally moved to Florida. There's also the cops who have gotten caught for robbery, racketeering, running a prostitution ring, planting evidence, and murdering Freddie Gray. I repeat, complete dismantling of the Baltimore Police Department. That's what it'll take to fix it. And I didn't have time in me to wait for that day. To say I let hopelessness in is an understatement. The people who organize the Stop Police Brutality are national heroes, just like Marshawn was and is a national hero. Marshawn wasn't just doing the work of advocating for the people gunned down by Columbus police. He was holding the weight of the entire city on his back. People believe in survival and healing for different reasons. For many, when you're from somewhere, you don't have any other choice. For the activists out there, regardless of why you organize and maintain, your strength, ability, and effort is remarkable. You are magnificent. You are saving us. But please, save yourselves. I've been an activist most of my life. My post-college life has been marked by being an organizer. Now I don't hit the streets so much. I did join the nonprofit industrial complex because protesting doesn't exactly pay, despite the conspiracy theories. Seriously, if you know someone paying protesters, send them my way. The first thing to know, if you're an organizer, new or old, is that this work is a marathon, it's not a sprint. The second thing to know is that thousands, maybe millions of people have died doing this work. Many have died before seeing what they were fighting for come to fruition. You will lose a lot, but you're working towards something that is an inevitability because of the work you put in every day, the work our ancestors put in. Freedom is an inevitability. It's hard to know if what we do makes a difference, but the world around us is evidence that it does. We are going to win, even if it's not today. The only thing they can take away from us now is hope. They've already been able to take our lives, our freedom, and still, they haven't been able to kill us. They haven't been able to kill our fights for civil rights, for justice, for supreme love, for freedom. I want you to know that it's okay to quit. In fact, sometimes the only way to return from burnout is to quit. I've seen people who keep working through their burnout and begin to treat other people like trash because you can't be supportive if you're not supported. My friend Joe told me that once. So if you can, quit. In little ways, 
take breaks, take long breaks. There's no point to the work if it kills you in the process. For those who are listening or thinking, no, don't quit. We need more people. Think about how much easier, how much faster, how much better we would achieve the goals of liberation if a whole lot of folk started with dismantling the oppression in themselves. Think about all the movement folks who you know who espouse great values but treat people terribly. Trauma is real. And if it begins to have a place in your body, you will give it away to other people or it will kill you. If you can't quit many times because your survival depends on the work you're doing, find ways to care for yourself. Tell someone if you feel like you're falling into a hole you may not get out of. Our duty to fight for freedom also means a duty to model it ourselves, to show people how to live it in our exact circumstance. In commenting about Marshawn's death, fellow activist Jonathan Butler told the Washington Post, in the movement, you're constantly engaging in Black death, seeing the communal impact. Butler said he'd long struggled with depression, beginning with the death of his grandfather. He remarked that involvement with the protest movement at times had worsened his mental health. He said, not only because of the emotional strain of a single-minded focus on racism, but also because of more mundane stressors, such as media scrutiny and infighting amongst allies. So many people glamorize the visibility that comes with being in these spotlights, Butler said, and they're not seeing the pressures. The writers of the article added, Some of the most prominent activists and organizers are battling not only the system, but depression. Studies have found that Black Americans are more susceptible to depression and anxiety, a disparity that health experts believe stems from social stigma and a lack of access to mental health resources in Black communities. Monica Williams, director of the Center for Mental Health Disparities at the University of Louisville said, I think a lot of African-Americans are walking around depressed, coping from day to day and not really living. For an activist, William says, depression can be especially dangerous. Most of the conversation about race and justice occurs online where harsh and threatening messages are abundant. In fact, one of Marchand's last Facebook posts dated January 14th 2016, was a screenshot of a threatening email he'd gotten. It said, We're gonna make your life hell until you keep your N-word mouth closed. Marshawn prolifically responded, Do your thing, Whitey. I can't close this episode without talking about one more thing. The theory that Marshawn was murdered. Maybe by the same racists emailing him. Maybe by the police. Maybe by the proverbial they. One comment read, They killed this boy. 
This reeks of police and professionals. I called this when they announced his death. They think we're morons. Now they're pushing that he was mentally ill and depressed. Typical. No one's buying that BS. In fact, the sentiment was so strong that one of his friends started a change.org petition signed by 975 people. In one part, it read, We feel confident that Marshawn McCarroll had no motives for the suicide. Given all of the facts and the absence of witnesses, we demand the full investigation to the death of Marshawn McCarroll. Considering the fact that Marshawn McCarroll allegedly committed suicide outside the state house, there should be footage of the tragedy. We demand the release of the footage as well. I personally don't think any of these quote-unquote conspiracy theories are as crazy as anyone wants to make them sound. After all, this is the same country whose FBI ran COINTELPRO against the Black Panther Party. To this day, activists all over the country are turning up dead, murdered, alleged suicides. Dane Jones was found hanging from a tree in the yard of his North St. Louis County home. His mother, Melissa McKinney's, was active in Ferguson and posted on Facebook after her son's death, they lynched my baby. That death was ruled a suicide. DeAndre Joshua, his body was found inside a burned car. The 20-year-old was shot in the head before the car was torched. Darren Seals met an almost identical fate. The 29-year-old's body was riddled with bullets and found inside a burning car in September 2016. Corey Bush, an activist who lived through an attempted murder, said, I've been vocal about the things that I've experienced and still experience. The harassment, the intimidation, the death threats, the death attempts. Bush said her car has been run off the road, her home has been vandalized, and in 2014, someone shot a bullet into her car, narrowly missing her 13-year-old daughter. Most recently in Columbus, the same city where Marshawn organized, the body of activist Amber Evans was found in the Choteau River. The route reports that Amber went to work the morning of January 28th. She left following a 5.30 p.m. meeting after telling her coworkers that she wasn't feeling well. She was last seen in security footage at a local store where she bought cold medicine and a Snickers bar. Police found Amber's abandoned car in downtown Columbus with her purse in the trunk, and her phone was found in another part of town. Her family says that Amber was not suicidal. And let's not forget, to this day, Waller County officials maintain that Sandra Bland's death was a suicide. It's important that we still prioritize mental health and supporting one another. But it's also not crazy for Black people to not trust the police and to go even as far as insinuate that they may be the ones behind the murders. It's easy to believe that when murder after murder, there is no accountability. And after news of Marshawn's death was made public, and a massive mourning ensued. Ohio police officer Lee Sir 
went on a post about Marshawn's death and actually said, quote, love a happy ending. Sickening. Lee was fired for that. I just hope he's not back working at whatever police department is down the street. And by the way, if I'm ever detained or go missing, I didn't kill myself. On the day that I'm writing this in 2019, a friend of Marshawn's wrote on his Facebook, Missing you, bro. Was going through your pictures. Just want you to know I haven't forgotten about you. Rest easy, my guy. Another said, Often I think of my friend Marshawn. I remember joking with him about how all his phone conversations sounded very important in Oakland at the 2015 National Poetry Slam. Dude literally sounded like he was going to end white supremacy with every phone call, lol. I feel guilty that I didn't recognize the burnout that his constant fighting, giving, and organizing would bring. I wish he could have taken a break. I wish he could have gotten to see Black Panther in his P.O.D. shirt and black bandana. As I mentioned, I spoke to one of Marshawn's friends in creating this episode. Thank you, Malaya. She suggested that I close this episode with a toast Marshawn used to say to his close friends and family. Never above you. Never below you. Always with you. Marshawn is survived by his parents, his brothers, his grandparents, his great-grandmother, a wealth of extended family, and everyone he would have considered tribe. Before I go, I'd like to offer y'all a final prayer and a poem written by Marshawn McCarroll, read by my friend, poet, and dope Oakland educator, Jeremy Michael Vasquez. To the heavenly creator of the universe and everything in it, I humbly thank you for the gift that was Marshawn McCarroll. I humbly thank you for the gift that was Amber Evans. I humbly thank you for the gift that was Tyrone West. I humbly thank you for the ones who are now ancestors, who activated us in some way, who modeled love that now the world is less for not having, and who showed us the way. We continue to honor you by continuing to fight, continuing to love one another better every moment, every day. We honor that you are gone and that we are here, and to that we have an obligation. And so it is. Down south. My grandmother lives down south where the trees still have the night terrors of bodies tugging rope like childish games. Have you ever heard the forest scream? It sounds like city school systems where children engage in the same games of tug or war where they only pull the books away. My grandmother lives down south, where nigger is the lightest word your tongue will ever lift, her mouth an underground railroad, her children northern stars, Bright enough to light every sky they were ever given. And a town 76% intoxicated on cotton gin with the history of hangover. Well, they celebrate Easter seven times a year. One time in church, six times on fire. 
In Jesus' name, she prays, poverty cease to squeeze like black fingers of inner city youth who live like poets where murder tastes like metaphors. Obituaries are chop books of the dead down south. You would think RIP was our favorite team. That our primary language was drunken eulogy on musty carpets where we speak of heaven as if we've been there. As if heaven was a mile away. As if every morning grandma doesn't wake up dilated on a tree. That's what I, how do you feel about love? I don't know. Love is misery. <laughs> love is miserable.